0: to Jerusalem. And uh, once he's there, he will not leave. Um, He's going to die there very soon. And um, we've been asking ourselves three questions as we go throughout the text. Who is Jesus? And if you've been paying attention, sort of have ears to hear or if you've been here enough. uh, We've got a decent answer to that. Uh, We know he's the Messiah. He he claims to be a king who's going to restore things. He also keeps calling himself the son of man. Uh, And when he does that, he talks about his death. What is he about? He's about a coming kingdom. He's coming to restore things, to make all things new, and to redeem a people. And the third question we've been asking is, why does he die? And to that question, we have gotten no answer yet. He's been, we've been told numerous times he's going to die, but we don't know why he's supposed to die until tonight. So that's our text for the evening. We're, uh, it's here, it's been read. We're going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. Pray together. Holy Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege of your word. We thank you that you acted and spoke in time and history and had it recorded for us uh, faithfully so we can know the kind of person, uh, the kind of God you are, and what you've done on our behalf. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. Pray that you would show us yourself this night. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you be gracious to press uh, the words of truth into our hearts. Grant us uh, sharp minds open eyes, and ready ears. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, for the second week in a row, I have an opening Oh, Brother Where Art illustration, just because it works. So, uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's really silly. Um, but uh, the, the movie begins with three recently liberated convicts breaking uh, off the farm. They liberate themselves, having escaped captivity and now free. Uh, they need a plan because uh, they broke off and people are coming to get them. They have to avoid recapture. They have to figure out how to make ends meet, where to go. They have to avoid uh, possible execution if they're caught. So they desperately need a plan. And uh, Everett McGill, the smart know-it-all, begins to talk and assert leadership as he is prone to do, at which point Pete, a pretty bright but obstinate one, speaks up. Forgive me for doing this, but I'm from the South. So, uh, Who wouldn't put you in charge? Well, I assumed it to be the one with the capacity for rational, abstract thought. But if you object, we can put it to a vote. Well, I'm voting for yours truly. Well, I'm voting for yours truly, too. And there's three of them. So we have a split vote at this point, And they look to, to Delmar, who's the kind, uh, clueless one. Delmar looks at one and the other and says, I'm with you fellers. Uh, by disposition some of us are more I'm with you fellers kind of people without the idiocy and the southern accent Uh, we're we're laid back and and prone to go with the flow Um, but uh, when circumstances turn against us when things get hard when it's not clear who's in charge it's really easy for us to begin to assert ourselves to criticize, to plan think about how we would do things differently and uh, maybe even to have a little mini-coup and to try to assert our authority and work our way in. And if it's clear, perhaps, that we can't do that and the ship's going down, then we begin to plan how we can flee, abandon, and save our own skin. Uh, the contention tonight, so what I'm arguing, and what ultimately I'm going to argue against or, or, or seek a hope or a cure for, uh, I believe uh, that Christianity is stricken. Not the way it's supposed to be. Christianity, as it's supposed to be, is altogether fine. But Christianity, as it's seen in the world and experienced, especially by outsiders, is obscured by Christians. Now, of course, we're not perfect, so that's natural. But my contention tonight is that folks that watch the church, folks that watch carefully Christians, instead of seeing love, they often see division. Instead of seeing service, they often see self-interest and self-gain. Because I believe that all of us, uh, Christians and non-Christians, have a, have a really bad case of self-ambition. And um, those of us that, that call ourselves Christians, and consider ourselves Christians, uh, this is going to be hard for some of you, but I think it's altogether possible that you would believe Jesus died for you, has forgiven you, and that it's altogether sort of okay for you to go ahead knowing that, and just do whatever you want. Live the kind of life you really want. Jesus loves me, he forgave me, I can do what I want now. But, but the reality from this text, the contention from this text is, it's not okay. That uh, some things have to be different. Christians are not supposed to be completely different from the world in every way. If you're in RUF for very long, you hear me talking about us being normal, or trying to be normal all the time. There are ways in which we're supposed to be like the world. We have jobs, we have family, we have fun, we recreate, we, have, we procreate. I mean, these, these, are, these are natural things. It's part of being normal. These are things you're supposed to do. But there are ways in which we're supposed to be different as well. And uh, what we're going to see tonight is that if you trust Jesus, if you trust in his death, there's some, some things have to be different. So tonight, the main point of the talk is that uh, those who are set free by Jesus should freely serve. Those who are set free by Jesus should freely serve. We're going to talk about Christ's death and then Christ's direction. Okay, His death and his direction. And uh, Christ's death looms largely over the beginning of the text. The beginning and the end, actually. And even the middle, some. But especially the beginning. Uh, They're going up to Jerusalem, and uh, this is no accidental trip. Actually, in the midst of this trip, everyone's going to Jerusalem. It's the time for the Passover meal. Jews from all over the world are going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is in the midst of hundreds or thousands of people on this road going up to Jerusalem. And yet There's something about the way he's going that freaks people out. And If you look at it, it says, They were amazed, those who followed were afraid. And it seems to be the case that Jesus is marching with such singular purpose toward Jerusalem that people around him are sort of freaking out. Like, what is going on? And uh, we see in our text that Jesus knows he has to die. He set his sights on Jerusalem, and he's going there. And what he says to his disciples in preparing them makes it very clear to us that Jesus knows he's going to die because he predicts his death in verses 33 and 34. He says in verse 33, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, this is the title he uses again when he talks about his death, will be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes. They will condemn him to death deliver him over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. After three days, he will rise. This is the third prediction Jesus is given like this, but this is the most detailed and the one uh, most clearly representative of actually what happens, both in who is involved, the religious leaders at first, and then the Gentiles. This is sort of the way it had to happen. Jews didn't have the right to execute their own. But also in what happens physically that uh, he would be flogged and spit on and killed and mocked. Jesus accurately predicts everything that will happen to him. Some people, some people make a really big deal about this, like Jesus can foretell the future, and I don't say he can't. But frankly, this, is, this part of the text is not remarkable. Because someone in Jesus' position, who's sort of a, a firebrand of the day, if he was going to be killed in Jerusalem, he would be killed just like this. The Jews couldn't kill their own. He would be handed over to the Gentiles and they would crucify him and they would mock him and they would beat him and they would spit on him. This is the way they treated their criminals. This is the way things went. So that's not that's what's remarkable about this prediction. What's remarkable about this prediction is the language Jesus uses isn't just saying what's going to happen. It's actually the language of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 50. There Isaiah is talking about this servant of the Lord who will come. In Isaiah 50 verse 6, we read, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Flogging, disgraced, mocked, spit upon. And in chapter 53 of Isaiah, which we read from at the beginning, it goes into greater detail about the mistreatment that this suffering servant will undergo. And Jesus is saying, by pulling these verbs out, I'm that guy. I'm going to Jerusalem and dying, well, just like this, because I am the suffering servant. I am the one long foretold by God who must die uh, this humiliating death at the hands of others. Well, uh, the prediction is that Jesus must die. And uh, this is important because it, it clues us into the reality that this is not a tragic accident in history. Instead, it's part of God's plan. And we get a clue to this in verse 33, actually. In verse 33... Uh, we read the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and it should raise a question in your mind if you're a careful reader and if you're not, I'm teaching you how to be a careful reader um, delivered by who? who's going to deliver him over? if you read the story you find out that one of his own men betrays him but, but this language is actually one of abandonment abandonment to judgment and it's the language the Old Testament uses to speak of God delivering his people over for judgment The answer is to who delivers Jesus over is his father. This is the father's plan for Jesus. And it's a plan that Jesus willingly undertakes on his own. But this is what Isaiah 53 says again. That it's the the will of the Lord to crush him. And that Jesus himself will willingly offer himself as a sacrifice. If you take a religion course at a state university or even some private universities... uh, on the New Testament or on the person of Jesus, you will have a heavy dose of what's called the historical Jesus movement. It's the effort to try to figure out what Jesus was like apart from, like, Scripture and anything that might be supernatural. So, can we piece together what we might think might be true about Jesus apart from the Bible? And uh, the composite picture tends to be Jesus was this Galilean Jew who was a good teacher who was also a radical revolutionary firebrand who went to death and got killed. It was a tragic mistake of history. And to that, I would respond... But that's not how Jesus understood his death. Now, I understand you might not believe Scripture's true, but I believe my historical documents here are better than yours, or just as good as. But it's clear from this text that Jesus doesn't look at his death as a tragic accident and mistake in history, but a purposeful planned event by God that he willingly enters into. This is God's plan. And the plan is that Jesus will go and die, not as a tragic accident, of tragedy of history, but as a payment and it's, the, it's the word that's used at the very end of our text in verse 45 that the Son of Man comes not to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hope you notice that. Uh, it's, a, it's a very rare word in the Bible. And uh, we, we actually know something about this word probably from everyday experience. We know what ransoms are. When someone is abducted, kidnapped, imprisoned, you know, someone demands a ransom, a million dollars in a plane or something like that. And uh, the deal is, you give me your money or this person dies. Pay up the ransom or it's their life. And uh, the ransom price here is shocking. The ransom price in verse 45 is that he gives his life as a ransom. Not silver, not gold, uh, not the kingdom of Mesopotamia. Um, uh, Any of these other things that Jesus could have given, it's his life. The ransom price is Jesus' very own life. In effect, Jesus is giving his life as a substitute for the life of someone else. That's the way a ransom works. If you don't pay it, this person dies. And this clues us into our predicament. Jesus' prediction, Father's plan, Jesus' payment, our predicament. This text is telling us that we're imprisoned. That we're being held ransom. That we're enslaved. And again, you should ask, by who, by what? i like, I don't live in America. you not noticed. I'm not enslaved by anything. Free. And uh, the Bible's answer to this over and over again is that you're enslaved to your own bentness, your own selfishness, what the scripture calls sin. That it has a price, it has a penalty, that you, you can't do whatever you want without having to pay up, and the person you have to pay is a just God who's holy. He simply can't let you get away with doing whatever you want. It's a consequence for your treacherous behavior, turning your back on God to serve yourself. that's your death. There are other consequences. If you just sort of let yourself do whatever you want, you reap the consequences in this life for that. We live in the real world. You just can't be an idiot do whatever you want and get away with it. Um, but also in your own character, you experience corruption. We are imprisoned by the condemnation of sin, by the guilt and corruption of sin, by the, by the consequences of sin. And Jesus comes as a payment to set us free from all that. That's what he does. He comes and gives his good and perfect life as the perfect ransom price to set you free, to liberate you from the tyranny of sin and death. Uh, we don't think of this ourselves this way. I mean, most of us think we're doing pretty well. And we have resources. You know, if I'm being held ransom, I have resources. I'm a pretty good person. I can pay my way out of here. I can break out. My parents will get me out. Uh, Scripture's perspective on this is that you're bankrupt. You're hopeless. You're captive. And it's going to take someone outside of yourself to set you free. It's hard for us to imagine. Victor Hugo captures this very well in his uh, expansive, way-too-long novel, uh, Les Mis. Early on, uh, Jean Valjean has been properly released from prison. Didn't break out like our other guys did. Um, But after three days, finds himself in a similar plight. Can't make ends meet. uh, Can't find a job. Who's going to employ next con, especially one that looks like him? He's a huge, hulking man. Uh, Can't find food. Can't find anywhere to stay until he's finally taken in by a kind bishop. He feeds him a meal, gives him a good bed. But in the middle of the night, uh, Jean Valjean's darker, selfish, sinful side comes up. Perhaps he's trying to figure out how he's going to make ends meet. Perhaps he's bitter what life's given him. But he decides to get up in the middle of the night and uh, steal. He steals the silver cutlery from the house and escapes into the night. The next morning, the bishop's eating breakfast. Uh, having already discovered, his cutlery's gone. And, um, is interrupted by Jean Valjean, accompanied by a number of French soldiers. You see they sort of following him. He's a convict. He's got papers. And they discovered him with all this silver. And he's got this crazy story about how this bishop just gave it to him and let it go. So they bring him back. And certainly Jean Valjean is thinking, this is it. It's my sentence. I'm done. Back to the pen for me. I'll never get out. It's a life of enslavement. And instead, what he hears is the bishop say, Ah, there you are, Jean Valjean. But I gave you the candlesticks, too, which are silver like the rest and would bring you 200 francs. Why didn't you take them as well? Then to the guards he says, He told you, didn't he, that I would given these things to him? That this is the house where he had slept. You you didn't believe him. I see it all. There's been a mistake. Jean Valjean, not believing what he's hearing, says, "Is, Is it true? Is it true they're letting me go? I'm being set free. And as he goes, uh, the bishop says, My friend, before you go, here are the candlesticks. Take them. They're yours. And Hugo notes that Valjean doesn't know what to say. doesn't know what to think. that he's about to faint. See, the bishop paid a ransom for Valjean. He gave him his life back. He didn't deserve it. He deserved to go to prison. But he gave him his life back. And it was costly. It didn't cost the bishop nothing. It was costly. In the book of 1 Peter, we find that word ransom again. And Peter writes about Jesus, his friend. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of our perfect Lamb. The biblical portrait of reality for you is that you're locked up and imprisoned by your selfishness and sinfulness. And God pays a price for you, and it's his very own perfect life. Is this what you believe? And I'm not saying I can make you believe this, but is this what you believe? If you're a Christian, this is what you're supposed to believe, that you cannot be good enough, that you cannot earn your way out, that your meritocratic nature, that you just think you can earn your way out of things. It does not apply here. You can't be good enough. You don't have the resources. You need someone to take this test for you. You need someone to pay this debt for you. You need someone to die this this death for you. Um, and if you don't believe this I understand it takes a time and perhaps you think this is crazy, that's fine but I do want you to, to if you don't believe this to at least see this is what the Bible says is true about humans and God so it's been like this all semester we just got to get used to it maybe I can work into a cadence where it would be right there actually I, I can't do that um, there's another possibility I mean It's possible that you think, this is crazy, I don't need somebody outside of me to come and save me and die for me. But it's possible that you're on the other end of the spectrum. It's possible. That somebody here tonight is thinking, I'm hopeless, helpless, resourceless. I feel enslaved. I feel trapped. I do things I can't stop doing, and I wish I could. I need someone to come and set me free. And the good news is for you is that someone's willing to do that. Jesus has done that. If you latch onto him by faith in his life and death. So the question we have to ask now, this will go much quicker, I promise, is uh, once you're free, once you're liberated, once Jesus sets you free, then what? Are you free to do whatever you want? Because that's the way we understand freedom in our culture. You're free. Well, I can do whatever I want. And that's actually not true. It's not true anywhere. Uh, and it's not true here either. The portrait here is that if you embrace Christ's death by faith, then you should be willing to embrace his direction as well. And uh, we, we see sort of the opposite of that here. Jesus tells the men about his death, and promptly James and John right afterwards say, Hey, you just talked about dying. Is this a good time to talk to you about wanting seats in glory? What a terribly ill-timed, impetuous request, right? I'm about to die a horrible death. Oh, uh, I know you just talked about that. Can we have seats in glory beside you? Um... You see, they have a a horrible case of selfish ambition. Maybe they think they deserve it. Maybe they think Jesus is just gracious and will give it to them. Um, It's not just them that have it. Verse 41, it knows that the other disciples hear about it and they're indignant. And I think part of the reason they're indignant is because they didn't think about it first. Like, why did I think about that? And just sort of selfish and how dare they angle for the seats of honor because they should be mine seats of honor we have a natural inclination to go our own way and to serve ourselves and if you embrace Jesus by faith you're not allowed to do that and so I want to speak to those here for just a second that are not Christians and you know you're not or you're not sure you are I want you to listen carefully because I want to paint a portrait for you in the next few minutes of what Christians are supposed to be and we often fall short of that and we, we should be willing to admit that there's a sense in which we are hypocrites we're not all that we're supposed to be I'm just going to put it out there But I also want you to hear what we're supposed to be, okay? Um, And and Jesus is saying here, and he's talking about leadership and service. These men want to be in charge, James and John and the others. And Jesus is going to say, if you want to be a leader, you've got to be a servant. You have to follow my direction. And Jesus will say in verse 42, "Uh, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. What he's saying here is, we all know the world works in a certain way. It works by power, the exercise of power. In verse 43, Jesus says, not this way with you. It's not going to be this way. I won't let it be this way. And, uh, what we have here, in this direction Jesus is giving, is is some really hard but I think really beautiful things uh, that should mark the Christian community, any Christian community. And so, uh, three things here. Um, if we are moving in Christ's direction, we will not be above but among. Verses 42 and 43. Christians, you should take this as a litmus test of how you're doing. This should hurt a little bit. Uh, 42 and 43, that we should not be above but among. In 42, he says, you know, this is the way the world works. People in power make declarations. They exercise authority. They domineer. They make decisions. They're not down there among the people. They're not doing polls. They're just making stuff happen. And Jesus says, not among you. And in fact, he emphasizes the among you in verse 43. It shall not be this way among you. Whoever would be great among you uh, must be your servant. So I just want to say, if you're a Christian, you don't get to be above, you've got to be among. You don't get to lord it over. You don't get to make decisions for other people. You don't get to make declarative decisions that rule over others. Instead, as a Christian, you're called to be among in the midst of Jesus isn't saying there's no such thing as leadership, but he's saying Christian leaders lead from within. They're down low in the midst of the people. They know them. They care for them. They're with them. And related to this is the next one, that we're not separate, but serving. Verse 43, the same thing. It's a little bit of a tweak. Shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So you can be among a group of people, but still separate. So so for instance, like right now, this is a good portrait. All of you, who's 18? or who's, You're 17 or 18? 18. 18. Youngest person in the room, probably. Who's the oldest person in the room besides me? Anybody want to just raise their hand and guess? Probably you 2 You're like 22. So there's a sense in which I'm among you, but I'm 37. And I can say, y'all go talk about whatever you're going to talk about. I'm among you, but I'm going to be separate because y'all are y'all and I'm me. I'm not really above you because I'm among you, but I'm separate than you. So go do your thing. There's a sense in which that's true and there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, you don't get to do that as a Christian leader. Like, you don't, you don't get to say, hey guys, have a nice day and go lock the door and sit in your office all day. Instead, you tear down the walls of the cubicle and you move in. Uh, as a Christian living in your dorm, you don't get to say, close my door and I don't care about those people out there. I'm among them, but I don't want to be. Well, I'm sorry. You have to be. Not only do you have to be among them, but you have to be willing to serve them. That's what the text says. You can't be separate, and you have to serve. And and the word here is that of a table servant. We don't like this. No one likes this idea. You have to be willing to go out there and give people what they want and need. You have to consider their needs more important than your own. That's a hard thing. Who wants to do that? That's what I thought. Um, Not separate, but serving. And then lastly, not exclusive, but expanding. So all together. Not above but among, not separate but serving, not exclusive but expanding. See, our tendency I think is always to seek the inside, to seek the inner circle. Most of us, unless we're really highly insecure. We'll move into a group and try to figure out who are the movers and shakers, who are the power people, who are the cool people, who are the people in the know, who are the people that make things happen. How do I get in their circle? How do I become one of them? And maybe, just maybe, how do I become the head honcho in the middle? Not all of us are like that, but some of us. And um, Jesus says, you don't get to do that. He's not saying there's not a first. He's saying there's a first, and when we think first. We think, I'm the first. I'm the, I'm the man. I'm the woman. People serve me. And Jesus is saying, My definition of first is you're the slave of everybody. If you want to be the greatest and the first, your job is to, to make everyone else your highest priority. It's the most subversive ethic in the world. It's crazy, it's beautiful. It's hard. It demands your whole life. And, uh, and it's what makes Christianity, when it's doing what it's supposed to do, the most beautiful thing in the world. And it's expansive. It's not exclusive. You don't get to pick who you serve. You see that? Right? He's just speaking to 12 people here, and Jesus is saying, alright, you've got to serve each other. You gotta... And then he drops it off and saying, you have to be slave of all. Would, would you say Jesus? All? Yeah. Not just these guys all. It's the way he ends this thing. So, yeah, I'm sorry if you're in this room. You don't just have to love and serve people in this room. You've got to do it out there. Out there. With everybody. Including people you really don't like at all. That's Jesus' social ethic. That's Jesus' call and direction if you embrace his death. This is what he's calling us to. I read an article this week. The uh, Headline to sort of grab my attention: Texas atheist flabbergasted by outpouring of Christian charity. And I read that and said, "Well, of course he'd be flabbergasted, because uh, first of all, it has to be really hard to be an atheist in Texas. Um, <laughs> you know, it just really have to be hard." <laughs> and uh, sure enough, he he was a die, is a die in the wool atheist who like opposed every effort of every Christian to do anything in public, so tear down the nativity scenes at the mall and that kind of thing. Um, but people in the area learned that he had a detached retina and needed a surgery. Was going to lose his sight, and uh, someone in the church contacted him about it. And he's like, "Yeah, but if you really want to help, we need groceries." It's like we can't afford to eat, much less have a surgery. So he expected like a twenty-five dollar check, fifty-dollar check. That week, he got four hundred dollars, and the money kept coming in. And uh, he was—I mean, I, to my knowledge, he's not a Christian, but uh, or it's become one, or maybe I even planning on becoming one, but he has seen a sliver of what it's supposed to be, and he, he, he writes, I'm going, to, I'm going to write a book about this. He's thinking about writing a book, calling it The Real Christians of Henderson County. These people are acting like what the Bible says a Christian does. This is important for us to hear for Christians. Non-Christians have an idea of what we're supposed to be like, and it's loving and serving and focused on others, and we don't live up to it. And... We have to be one to admit, we probably never will have up to that perfect ethic. But are we even trying? Are we even trying? Do we even care? How about us? How about you? A couple questions. Are you among people? Maybe you're not above them. Maybe you think you are. I'm too good to hang out with those people. Are you among them? Are you actually spending time with people? People around you. Not people you selectively handpick because you really like them and they're like you. But the people around you, like where you live, are you among them? Trust me, this is terribly convicting for me. Those of you that know me well to have been to my house, you know I have a neighbor that doesn't really like me. <laughs> this is hard. Um, are you among people? Are you with them? Or do you think you're too important, or you're too busy. You you do know that sometimes too busy is another way of saying I'm too important. What I'm doing is too important to stop for other people. It really does mean that sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes you're busy. Sometimes other people's stuff is more important than what you're doing. Then secondly, are you among them as a servant? Or do you prefer to pick your spots? I've talked about this before. I'll say it again. This is not browbeating. We, and a lot of guests here, so I don't always say very hard things about my group of students and myself. I'm just being honest. We suck at service. We're terrible at this. Maybe some of us as individuals are good, but as a group, we've just... Bad. I've been bad. Uh, we're not known by this. And the reality is most of us would rather pick our spots to serve, jump on a plane and fly across the world to do something than serve the people right here. And you need to hear this if you're a Christian. You're not here by accident. God didn't surround you with 17,000 undergrads so that you can just do what you want. You're here to serve them. Them too. Not just people you get to self-select that are like you. Um, and again, this is hard. I'm not browbeating you because I am convinced that no amount, first of all, it would be wrong for me to browbeat you and guilt manipulate you. I'm not doing that. But I'm convinced also it wouldn't work. It doesn't work. I'm not beating you up. But I do need you to hear that this is God's plan for you and the way things are supposed to be and what non-Christians and doubters are supposed to see from you is you being willing to love and serve them. And Le Mis, um, right before Jean Valjean is set free by the bishop, the bishop speaks to him and says, don't forget ever that you promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean's like, I don't remember making any such promise. And he goes on and says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you are no longer uh, belonging to evil but to good. It's your soul I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition. And I give it to God. And you need to know, Christian, that this is what Jesus has done for you. He gave his very own life to ransom you from your death and imprisonment. Not so you could live for yourself and do whatever you want. But so that you can follow his own direction and give your life for others. And you need both sides of the gospel here. You need to hear the message of humility. You are not too good to serve other people. You get that? You're not too good or too busy. You're not too important. How good or busy are you and important? You're so great, God's son had to come and die for you. Okay? That should be pretty humbling. You should be willing to be a servant. God's son was willing to come and die for you. Let that sink in. Okay? At the same time, the fact that God would die for you should move you. He loves you enough to lay down His life for you. He treasured you enough to give Himself for you. You should be moved out of a response of gratitude and love to give yourself for others, to follow in Jesus' direction.